Welcome to the Hush Channel. All we know for sure is that we know nothing for sure. Given the previous tape, Side Ace talks of how red night vision goggles exposed the spiritual world to soldiers while fighting in Vietnam, leaving soldiers with the horrors of having seen and gone to war with literal demons. It is no surprise that the Vietnam War was also heavily riddled with alien interference. As explained continuously throughout these tapes, the heavens is just another term for outer space. Angels are defined as beings from the heavens. Aliens are defined as beings from outer space. Perspective programming and semantics. It is all the same thing. These interdimensional entities are fair to us as being separate, rather by culture, description, depiction, programming, semantics, religion, time period, abilities, location, etc. But the vision is always a distraction. These entities are of the same cloth. This is why when you find a hot spot for paranormal, supernatural, spiritual-like activity in nature, that same territory is also a hot spot for alien activity and vice versa. UFO hotspots are known to also host supernatural activity or be deemed haunted or cursed land and territory. The thing that divides them in our heads is the human social construct. But that does not mean these beings are not one and the same. That is simply the way that we have defined things in order to understand the world around us. During the Vietnam War, the American soldiers were said to be fighting two enemies. The VCs, the Viet Congs, and the ETs, the extraterrestrials. There are many men who despite having survived the war physically, died mentally, and returned home a shell of themselves, unable to speak of the atrocities of war. But those are all things that war can definitely do to a man. But some of these men also experienced otherworldly supernatural layers on top of all that chaos and destruction. There are others who felt the need to make citizens aware of the truth of the world, no matter how crazy people might believe them to be. Since then, many have actually came forward to talk about it. Known as the godfather of conspiracies, William Milton Cooper, author of the conspiratorial cataclysmic work, Behold a Pale Horse, was also involved in the Vietnam War, and he is one who spoke up. And his audiobook is also featured on this channel. He even speaks about the otherworldly aspect of the Vietnam War, and he theoretically paid his life for divulging such information to the American public about American historic events. Given the information gathered across various sources, the extraterrestrials were interfering to stop mankind from destroying ourselves, and in the process of doing so, destroying the entire planet. Nothing is new under the sun, and there was a time in a different era previously when warfare progressed so chaotically that nuclear warfare almost destroyed the planet before. And that is why today there are ancient ruins of what were presumed to once be heavily populated advanced societies. However, there is radiation in such areas, and scientists just cannot seem to figure out how this even occurred. Even in ancient religious texts, especially in Hinduism, there are talks of wars between the gods, which describe their weapons, their technology, and flying mechanisms, of which these gods use during warfare, of which is describing nuclear warfare, nuclear technology of ancient aliens. These aliens, during the American wars, were simply trying to prevent history from repeating itself and potentially this time destroying the planet 
entirely instead of specific areas as they had in the past. Because it does seem that greed and power both cause our elites to forget that we all have to live on this planet. No matter who we are, our status, our accomplishments, none of that matters. We all have to live on this planet. So we should take care of it. Simple, right? All that is better shown and explained in the previous tape entitled World War One, Two, and the War of the Worlds Alien Edition, where we go through a chronological timeline of alien interference that heightens when America begins attempting to create the atomic bomb. I'm talking about their involvement in actively blowing up factories and plants that contributed to the atomic bomb's progression, which began to happen daily. And then there's the human retaliation of a full atomic bomb building plant that was actually a trap for these extraterrestrials known as the Roswell Incident of 1947. So it makes sense that there are stories from veterans saying balls of fire and spacecraft were coming from the waters below them and the skies alike because where oh where is the abyss the deep waters and it is true that most ufos become usos unidentified submerged objects and while we may call the abyss hell in religion the deep waters is the home of these aliens these demons these fallen angels whatever you call them these entities live there see how the truth always points in the same direction every time water covers 71 percent of earth these beings have the largest territory on earth and were here before humans this is more of their planet than it could ever be ours thus them being called extraterrestrial and they do seem to mind their business that is for the most part until humans show obtuse disregard on how our affairs could harm not just our species but the entire planet this side of the tape focuses on frank joseph's work entitled military encounters with extraterrestrials the real war of the worlds chapter 14 the vietnam war era frank joseph military encounters with extraterrestrials the real war of the worlds chapter 14 the vietnam war era no ufo reported investigated and evaluated by the air force was ever an indication of threat to our national security robert c siemens jeter secretary of the u.s air force december 17 1969 william english told interviewer rick barber on radio koa in denver the following I was in Vietnam from 1970 to 72, and we had a recovery mission over in the jungles in Laos, a downed aircraft to recover, and if possible, surviving crew members, plus what they told us were flight recorders and those kinds of things, in which we did. We went in and we found the aircraft, a Boeing B-52 Stratofortress jet bomber. It had not crashed. It was an extremely unusual situation. There was no crash damage to the surrounding jungle. The aircraft was not destroyed. Minor damage was found only on the underside of the fuselage. It looked as though it had been placed there in the jungle by a great, big, giant hand. E-52, all 133 tons of it, flying 525 miles per hour at 50,000 feet, had been apparently abducted in mid-air, then set down at a remote spot of the tropical forest. When we gained access to the aircraft, we went in through one of the hatches. The entire crew of five men was still in their seats, strapped in their safety harnesses, and mutilated. English and his fellow rangers initially assumed that the airmen had been tortured by the Viet Cong, but close examination of the mangled corpse's unusual condition soon convinced the men otherwise. Moreover, the immediate vicinity indicated that no outsiders had visited the downed aircraft. 
The entire crew was still in their jumpsuits. We found no survivors. There were several hundred thousand tons of bombs on the thing. The B-52 actually carried a maximum payload of 35 tons, something English, serving only in the Green Berets would not have known. A load of bombs were in the bomb base. We were operating in enemy territory, and everybody had to get in and get out as fast as we could. I did take photographs, collected dog tags. We recovered the black boxes that were on the aircraft, where we were told they were located, and then we placed satchel charges throughout the aircraft and destroyed it with the bodies in it. There was no possible way to transport the bodies out. The dead men aboard were subsequently listed as killed in action. We turned in the material that we got, the black boxes, the photographs, and the dog tags, and whatever records that we found on the aircraft to MACV, Military Assistance Command, Vietnam Headquarters in Saigon, and we forgot about it. When, five years later, as a data analyst in England, I viewed the Grudge 13 report, and there was a report attached to the photographs, which stated that the aircraft, a downed stratofortress, had been in radio contact with its base, and that it reported that it was under attack by bright objects. And then, all of a sudden, the radio transmissions died. The B-52 had been attacked by very bright objects, bright glowing objects. Accounts of alien atrocities committed against servicemen during the Vietnam War predated the grisly find English and his team made in Laos. Rumors floated around that UFOs had kidnapped and mutilated two army soldiers, then dropped them in the bush. Recalled Milton William Cooper. Cooper was captain of PB-44, a patrol boat that plied the Khoa Viet River from 1967 to 1969, when he received the Silver Star, the U.S. military's third highest decoration for valor in combat. Before his discharge in 1975, Cooper rose through the ranks of naval intelligence, where his prestigious citation granted him a kind of special clearance. Amongst the above top-secret files open to him was a report about the outcome of a battle between the enemy and U.S. Marines for a village inhabited by some 50 Vietnamese who could not be evacuated in time. As the fighting neared its climax, several metallic discs were seen hovering above their huts. Both sides had fired upon the UFOs, and they had blasted back with a mysterious blue light. Amongst the above top-secret files open to him was a report about the outcome of a battle between the enemy and U.S. Marines for a village inhabited by some 50 Vietnamese who could not be evacuated in time. As the fighting neared its climax, several metallic discs were seen hovering above their huts. Both sides had fired upon the UFOs, and they had blasted back with a mysterious blue light. Another mass disappearance involving extraterrestrials and U.S. elite forces occurred during August 1968, when members of a small ranger team were leaving enemy territory after completing a mission in North Vietnam and were on their way to a prearranged helicopter pickup location. With NLF, National Liberation Front forces gaining on them, the terribly outnumbered Americans climbed a high hill to gain some measure of defense. As they began digging in, the clatter of AK-47 assault rifles echoed from an adjacent hill just occupied by the pursuing Reds. Tracer rounds could be seen rising practically straight up into the sky, but not, as the commandos assumed, at their expected rescue helicopters. Instead, furious NLF fire concentrated on a large semi-circular object. One member of the team, as described by UFO historian Mac Maloney, recalled that its color kept changing from light blue to bright red. It was making no noise. 
As soon as the enemy tracers got close to the object, it suddenly stopped in mid-air. Just a few hundred feet from where the US Special Ops team was hiding, the Americans saw a streak of light shoot out from the front of the object. Then, there was nothing but silence. The UFO briefly lingered over the spot where the enemy had been firing at it, then turned and headed out to sea. The rangers lay low for another half hour before moving out to warily reconnoiter the opposite hill. The commies were nowhere to be seen, they had completely vanished. Only scattered about were their firearms, and they'd been melted down to almost nothing, leaving a smell that was so bad, it stayed with the team members for hours afterward. In fact, 1968 was the most intense year for confrontations between Vietnam-era Earthlings and extraterrestrials. It began on January 31st, as 70,000 North Vietnamese and Viet Cong forces launched a coordinated series of fierce attacks on more than 100 cities and towns across South Vietnam. But something other than human was also involved in the Tet Offensive, named after Indochina's Lunar New Year holiday. During one late-night operation, as a veteran recalls his experience, he and a few other Marines went through the base gate of the Red Beach Base area, a complex of logistics and support bases northwest of Da Nang, and marched into the jungle approximately three clicks, just under two mile, to a point where two of the uncounted trails known as the Ho Chi Minh Trail crossed and set up our ambush, waiting through the long, hot jungle night for Charlie to come walking down the trail. Charlie was US slang for Viet Cong soldier from Victor Charlie Military Communication Code for VC, an abbreviation of Viet Cong. The veteran continues, we broke ambush early am and had marched back down the trail and had just entered a clearing when suddenly up in the sky just above the jungle canopy and slightly behind us there it was the ufo visible for a short time apparently charlie saw it too and opened fire with rpgs rocket propelled grenades and small arms fire with no effect on the ufo we did not fire but only watched it hovered over us for maybe five minutes, then seemed to drift sideways, and suddenly as it had appeared, it was gone. We started marching again toward Red Beach. Nobody said anything, but the captain told us to forget about it. We got back to base without incident, but to this day, I can still see it, the UFO, and so can the rest of us in our memories. Three days in June, however, compressed more such activity than at any other time, beginning a world away from Southeast Asia, in another communist country. On the 14th, a 42-year-old reservist in the Ejercito Rebelde, Fidel Castro's revolutionary army, was standing guard duty near Cabanas, a village on the northeast coast of western Cuba, when a bright object stealthily descended behind a line of trees about five minutes after midnight. When Isidro Puentes Ventura went to investigate, he stopped within 150 feet of a landed disk suffused with white light, surmounted by a dome and an antenna array. The silent metallic craft, about the size of a large pickup truck standing on a kind of squat tripod, showed no other details, until Ventura blasted it with more than 40 rounds from his Kalashnikov machine gun. The target responded by growing dark, while emitting an ear-shattering whistle. The next thing he knew, Ventura awoke in a hospital bed after a coma lasting 13 days. Although not physically injured, neurologists determined his condition had been induced by emotional trauma. Other reservists in the area heard the blast of his automatic weapon, came running, found him lying motionless outside Cabanas but did not find a whistling disc, and carried him away to the naval hospital in Havana. After making his incredible report, 
he was subjected to 50 hours of continuous interrogation, followed by 15 hypnosis sessions. Meanwhile, state police investigating the scene of his alleged encounter recovered 48 spent cartridges from Ventura's Kalashnikov, plus 14 bullets flattened as if they had been fired against an extremely hard surface, according to Hall. A round depression was clearly visible in the soil, with a hole about three feet in diameter in the middle, and three indentations around it. Each of the three surrounding marks were rectangular in shape, and measured one meter deep by 40 centimeters wide, with the overall width across the three landing depressions measuring four meters. Intelligence officers discovered the area covered with a fine, gray dust spread 15 feet across the circular depression. Soil samples were taken for analysis, showing that they had been subjected to a high degree of heat. Cuban radar operators additionally detected an unidentified aircraft in the Cabanas area shortly after midnight June 14th, before their contact was lost as a result of anomalous electronic interference. Around noon the following day, two McDonnell Douglas F-4 jet interceptors thundered low over Bong Son, a town in the south-central coastal region of Vietnam, hotly pursuing a large silvery disc. One of the Phantom Ills got close enough to get off a 20-millimeter shell from its cannon, and the strange craft made a controlled crash landing in the middle of a firefight between a squad of American M60 tanks and an undetermined number of NVA, North Vietnamese Army troops, and Viet Cong, according to a U.S. Army grunt who witnessed the attack. Things sort of stopped for a while, until the NVA VC fired an RPG, rocket-propelled grenade, at the UFO. The first RPG had no effect, so more were fired. The UFO somehow neutralized the RPGs and started attacking the NVA VC. He does not indicate how the extraterrestrials defended themselves. At this point, the American tanks opened fire on the UFO. The UFO could not stop the Go Millimeter tank rounds and was destroyed. The NVA VC broke off and left. The Americans found several alien bodies and at least one survivor in the UFO wreckage. When the American commander, a major, called for a medevac, he was told nothing was available. Everything was being used in the search for the other UFO. He told them he had it and a chopper was immediately sent. When it arrived, the CIA type in charge refused to take the wounded American GIs. Instead, insisting he would only take the aliens. At this point, the Major shot the surviving alien and had his tanks grind the wreckage and extraterrestrial bodies into the ground. The chopper pilot overruled CIA type and medevaced the wounded. Word of the Bongsun incident spread rapidly among US servicemen throughout the region, making them jumpy and primed to go off half-cocked at anything resembling a cross between Charlie and an alien. Just after midnight, Lieutenant Pete Snyder and the American crew of Swift Boat, PCF-12, set out under a brightly moonlit sky, down the Quaviet, the same dangerous river where Captain Cooper earned his silver star for courage under fire. After approximately half an hour on the water, Snyder received an urgent message from another patrol boat not far away. Its commander, Lieutenant Richard Davis, requested immediate assistance against a pair of attacking enemy helicopters. During the Vietnam War, Enemy helicopter was a U.S. military euphemism for UFO, because the North Vietnamese only operated fixed-wing aircraft. They weren't called UFOs, they were called enemy helicopters, according to General George S. Brown, commander of the 7th U.S. Air Force and deputy commander for Air Operations Military Assistance Command Vietnam from 1968 to 1970, who later chaired the Joint Chiefs of Staff. As Lieutenant Snyder's vessel approached the other boat, 
He and his three crew members observed two glowing spheroids poised motionless above its position. Moments later, a sudden flash of blinding light illuminated PCF-19, which was instantly engulfed in a terrific explosion, killing five of the seven-man crew, including Davis. The spheroids vanished before the thunder of the blast echoed away down the riverbanks. PCF-12 picked up two wounded survivors, the gunner's mate and seaman, who told how the UFOs had followed them for miles up the Quaviette before attacking. Lieutenant Snyder radioed in a preliminary report to the U.S. Navy base at Saigon, and he received orders to complete his patrol. Just then, his second engineman, Jeff Steffes, frantically called out the appearance of two enemy helicopters, silently but steadily approaching their vessel. We spotted two aircraft hovering on our port and starboard beams, said Steffes. They were about 300 yards away and 100 feet above the water. As the boat swung around to put the aircraft ahead and astern of PCF-12, I could hear Mr. Snyder requesting air support and identification of these helos, short for helicopters. The answer from the beach was, No friendly aircraft in the area. Have contacts near you on radar and starlight scope. The result was, No friendlies? These had to be North Vietnamese. But they weren't. For the next two and a half hours, long beyond the operational range of any contemporaneous helicopter, PCF-12 played cat and mouse with the anomalous helos, opening fire on them at close range with twin 50 caliber machine guns from a forward turret, a pair of 7.62mm machine guns mounted on the port and starboard sides, and an MK-19 grenade launcher. But their combined firepower, as accurate as it was concentrated, had no effect on the incoming spheroids. One of them flew so close to the boat that Steffis could see they had a rounded front, like an observation helo, and he saw what looked like two crewmen sitting side by side. No pilot and gunner would fly an observation helicopter into combat sitting side by side behind a plexiglass canopy. If they had, Steffis would have shot them down in a heartbeat. As Lieutenant Snyder repeatedly radioed headquarters for backup, PCF-12 churned Quaviet's murky waters at top speed, in a desperate effort to escape its dogged pursuers. His pleas were finally answered around 3.20 a.m., when several Phantom fighter jets roared in low overhead, chasing off the menacing spheroids with six-barrel Gatling cannons clattering away and streaking AM-9 Sidewinder air-to-air -air missiles. By then, unknown to Snyder and his men, radar operators confirmed no less than 30 enemy helicopters of various dimensions, some of them as large as a warship, closing on Da Nang at 5,000 feet down Vietnam's east coast at 375 in my age more than twice the speed of any helicopter in the world at that time. When these contacts were visually identified by forward spotters along the eastern DMZ, demilitarized zone, a six-mile-wide strip separating north from South Vietnam, the entire Red Beach Base area was thrown into full alert. More U.S. 7th Air Force interceptors were dispatched to engage the flying armada, which was additionally fired on by every anti-aircraft gun at the Americans' disposal. Seemingly in the face of such resistance, the glowing lights veered away out over the China Sea. It was here that the U.S. naval fleet was stationed in company with a Perth-class guided missile destroyer of the Royal Australian Navy. Blacked out and maintaining radio silence, HMAS Hobart was patrolling near Tiger Island, about 13 miles off Caplay, when her starboard side was struck by a guided missile. It penetrated the aluminum hull and exploded killing ordinary seaman R.J. Butterworth and wounding two crew members. 
As Hobart's deck gun got off five shots at her unidentified attacker, two more missiles slammed into her starboard side, killing Chief Electrician Richard Hunt and injuring several others. After daybreak, military authorities were informed, to their horror, that the Blackadute Australian warship had been attacked by American fighter pilots, who had mistaken her in the dark for a UFO. They were further mortified to learn that none of the 30 enemy helicopters had been shot down, for all the thousands of cannon shells and the dozen or so guided missiles expended during the incident. The Royal Australian Navy News reported on August 1st that no physical evidence of helicopters destroyed has been discovered in the area of activity, nor has extensive reconnaissance produced any evidence of enemy helicopter operations in or near the DMZ. Not a scrap of wreckage related to the events of the previous month was ever found. Air Force pilots, rattled by too many ferocious extraterrestrial encounters, had become trigger-happy, mistaking the Hobart for an alien craft. Until the Royal Australian Navy news coverage, military spokesmen had been explaining how losses from friendly fire occurred in the midst of a confused skirmish with enemy helicopters. When these proved too elusive, blame fell on faulty radar systems and pilot misinterpretation of radar returns, minus any mention of the mysterious lights that had outflown the US Air Force. Radar operator and ground observer veterans of the confrontation knew better, but said nothing. Many years later, Jim Steffies, now retired, published his own eyewitness version, stating that he knew what the official story is, but his story is his story, and it is as true and complete as he could remember. The engagement and deadly confusion of June 15, 1968, may have represented less of a serious attack than a successful demonstration of otherworldly superiority. Two years before, an otherwise meaningless episode perhaps aimed at making a similar impression. It took place on the south-central coast of Vietnam during mid-1966, in Ha Trang, then home to more than 40,000 troops, 2,000 of them USGIs, sheltering in a valley along the China Sea. The heavily defended base featured several warehouses and a fuel storage area on the west, plus docks and equipment storage facilities in the south. On the evening of June 18th, eight bulldozers were cutting roads by the light of their headlamps around Hawk Hill, less than half a mile west of the compound, while under a mile to the east, two Douglas A-1 Sky Raiders, piston-powered, propeller-driven anachronisms in the jet age, were warming up on their newly bulldozed airstrip, about a mile to the southwest, just offshore. A shell oil tanker rode peacefully at anchor in the bay. This tranquil scene was the last in more than a month of enemy inactivity as a hundred or so soldiers casually gathered in an open area of the base to watch an outdoor movie around eight. Less than two hours later, the film abruptly stopped because the projector's power source, all six new, independently operated generators, ceased to function at that same moment, plunging all of Natrang into total darkness. About a half mile away, Another Air Force base simultaneously experienced an identical electrical outage. The engines of both Sky Raiders whirled to a stop, while the headlights and motors of all eight bulldozers switched off. As someone who experienced the power failure explained, there wasn't a car, truck, plane or anything that ran for about four minutes after the sky lit up with an exceptionally bright light. At first they thought it was a flare, all going off all the time, and then they found that it wasn't. It came from the north and was moving from real slow to real fast speeds. Some of the jet fighter pilots said it looked to be about 25,000 feet in altitude, and then the panic broke loose. It, the light dropped right towards us, and stopped dead still about 300 to 500 feet up. 
It made this little valley and the mountains around look like it was the middle of the day. It lit up everything. Then it went up, and I mean up. It went straight up and completely out of sight in about two, three seconds. Extraterrestrial demonstrations of earthling inferiority were impartially carried out over North as well as South Vietnam. On September 29, 1972, a correspondent for Agence France-Presse published his personal account of an invulnerable spheroid he and thousands of residents in the North Vietnamese capital observed under bright daylight conditions. Jean Toraval's feature article was carried around the world, including Lansing, Michigan State Journal, beneath the headline, What Was UFO Over Hanoi? Watching the craft through binoculars, Thoraval reported that a mysterious object appeared in the clear blue sky over Hanoi Friday, attracting missile fire from the ground, but apparently remaining motionless. It was spherical in shape and a luminous orange in color, and was clearly at a very high altitude. North Vietnamese air defenses fired three surface-to-air missiles, but they were unable to reach the target. The object remained in the same high spot for over one hour and twenty minutes, although, towards the end, it appeared less bright than before. Less than a month later, and half a world away from the war in Vietnam, a series of naval engagements took place with an extraterrestrial intruder north of Bergen, in Sonnefjord, Norway's largest fjord at 127 miles long, though less than four miles wide. It was here, during the early morning hours of November 12th, that a patrol boat on duty in the middle of the fjord, where its depths are greatest, 4,291 feet, picked up what appeared to be a Soviet whiskey-class submarine on its sonar scope. The Royal Norwegian Navy was alerted to arrive in a task force of destroyers, submarines, and an auxiliary aircraft carrier, which launched its attack helicopters. These were pairs of Westland WS-61 Sea Kings, each armed with four depth charges, which were dropped in the vicinity of the sonar contact. Shortly thereafter, all the Sea Kings experienced a variety of abnormal instrument failures that forced them to withdraw from further action, and they were replaced by land-based attack planes of the Royal Norwegian Navy Air Service. They too suffered from similar electromagnetic anomalies, but continued to fly cover for the growing number of naval units gathering below. Their target had meanwhile eluded them, so the western end of Sonefjord, which led out into the Atlantic Ocean, was tightly blockaded, trapping Norway's underwater intruder inside the narrow estuary. For more than two weeks, the fjord's depths were meticulously searched in a well-executed grid pattern that finally bore fruit after first light on November 26th, when sonar rediscovered its lost contact near the mouth of Sognefjord, where the bottom rises abruptly to about 330 feet below the surface in an apparent attempt at breaking out into the open sea. Destroyers closed in, dropping depth charges, which brought their evasive quarry to the surface. It was no Soviet submariner, however, but approximately twice as large as the USAR's 274-foot-long whiskey-class boats, which bore a no resemblance to the immense Seagarshepard vessel lacking a conning tower, or any other physical details. The lead destroyer immediately opened fire with its deck guns on the motionless craft, to no visible effect. The Norwegian submarine, KNM Sklinner, then launched a spread of torpedoes at the sitting duck target, but all either malfunctioned or missed. Before another attack could be readied, the huge, unidentifiable vessel gradually slipped beneath the waves and yet again inexplicably vanished from every sonarscope. Later that afternoon, civilians chanced to see the gargantuan object floating leisurely on the surface before it abruptly submerged near the island of Krakenis, not far from the fjord's Atlantic entrance. Eighteen minutes later, five policemen from the village of Sjolden on Sala Island observed its surface and informed the Navy. 
The distance covered by the object between these islands in the time separating both reports indicated it traveled at 124 MPa, far beyond the performance of any known submarine. Naval forces arrived too late for interdiction. The intruder disappeared yet again, but was finally cornered on the surface within 48 hours and rapidly engaged with anti-sub missiles fired by destroyers and aircraft. The enigmatic vessel passed through this concerted fire unscathed, submerged in a controlled descent. It was never again detected by sonar or seen by eyewitnesses, much to the consternation of Royal Norwegian Navy commanders, who had deemed their blockade of Sonnefjord impenetrable. The prolonged engagement had been far from secret, having been followed around the globe in the world press, including the New York Times. The Times assiduously avoided any references to extraterrestrials, but was at a loss to explain just what the Norwegian naval authorities had been chasing and fighting for more than two weeks. A few months later, they found something on the bottom of the fjord that was, and still is classified, as top secret. In early 1973, a Royal Norwegian Navy Special Forces deep-sea diver was helicoptered without explanation from his advanced training at Bergen to Sonefjord, where he and another diver found themselves on a warship. There they were suited up with oxygen-helium equipment for a deep descent, presented with state-of-the-art underwater military cameras. The two men were ordered to observe, report, and debrief, and memories every detail of what they found. But they were not told what they were supposed to find or given any further knowledge about the operation. The moment both divers simultaneously set foot on the midnight dark bottom of the fjord at more than 300 feet beneath its surface, their subsurface lights revealed a pair of deeply grooved tracks, obviously made by a belted vehicle of some kind, like a tank or bulldozer, that had progressed in a straight path through the ooze. Each track was 30 to 50 feet wide, and separated by a permanent 30 funny 50 foot wide gap. No other marks in the fjord bed suggested anything had been dragged or towed. But the vehicle that left the tracks had to have been an estimated 110-150 feet across, something completely foreign to our technological capacity, one of the divers recalled more than 40 years later, both now and then. It looked like the object had been lifted off the seafloor he said after both men swam over the unvarying tracks, which suddenly terminated after nearly two miles. There was no further trace of it further east of the fjord's entrance. Navy superiors provided their divers with no clarification about the nameless mission, and all photographs taken of the deep water track were and still are classified. It had been doubtlessly left behind by the 500-foot-long vehicle that had been unsuccessfully hunted a few months before in that same location, the subsurface tracks were not publicly disclosed until the next century by one of the divers. International attention shifted from the lengthy pursuit of what was, by all accounts, a USO, to headline-grabbing news about the increasingly costly conflict in Vietnam. Even there, however, Americans were simultaneously fighting two enemies, the VC and the ETs. One of those Americans was Peter Mazzola, a forward observer for an army platoon pinned down in tall elephant grass by enemy fire. His men lay low, hoping to find a way out of their encirclement, when several glowing spheres slowly and silently rose over the paddy fields and palm trees not far away. Assuming they were some kind of Viet Cong reconnaissance craft, Mazola radioed in their coordinates to U.S. Navy cruisers offshore. In no time, shells hurled in from American warships in the south, and then the objects began to receive artillery rounds from the other direction, from the north, the North Vietnamese position. The shells never made the target. They all exploded short. 
Even though the gunfire of both the Viet Cong and the US Navy was right on target, neither side touched the objects. They could see the black smoke puffs in the air. The spheres continued to hover, silently, gracefully, but in less than five minutes they shot straight up in the air, and were gone. Taking advantage of the confusion caused by such high strangeness, Mazzola and his comrades made good their escape. After the war, he became a New York City police detective, later founding Staten Island's Scientific Bureau of Investigation, for the serious study of UFO phenomena. Human soldiers continued to battle each other while confronting alien enemies until the fall of Saigon on April 30, 1975. The most notable extraterrestrial confrontation of the period occurred the previous June, when Japan Air Self-Defense Force commanders ordered a pair of F-4E Phantom Jet Fighters, flown by Lieutenant Colonel Toshio Nakamura and Major Shiro Kubuta, to intercept a presumed Soviet bomber near Hokkaido, the country's most northerly territory. Once airborne, they were informed that the intruder was actually a bright-colored UFO first observed by ground spotters, then tracked by radar operators. Vectored to their target at 30,000 feet, both pilots made visual contact with the red disc that Major Kubuta described as made and flown by intelligent beings. As Kubuta and Nakamura came within firing range of the object, it began executing a series of evasive maneuvers involving the Phantoms in a dogfight. After several minutes, during which neither pilot was able to score any hits on the disc, it collided first with one, then with the other aircraft. Both men successfully ejected, but Nakamura's parachute was set afire and he fell to his death as the UFO sped away. While these confrontations were taking place in Asia, the Russians were waging their own War of the Worlds. Although the heavy hand of Soviet censorship erased many details, enough information concerning the premier military engagement of its kind survived the USSR's collapse for post-communist researchers to reconstruct. They learn it from fragments of original documents in Stavka, the Red Army's high command, that history's largest air battle between earthbound aviators and alien ufonauts occurred during early summer 1967. According to Stonehill, it took place on the Soviet Union's border region with Iran and Afghanistan. Although the total number of combatants is unknown, six modern Soviet aircraft were destroyed and 12 pilots perished. Facts regarding their identities or the types of warplanes they flew are still missing. More certain, however, was Stavka's subsequent demand that absolutely forbade any contacts with UFOs. Furthermore, military aviators were ordered not to approach the objects at less than six miles distance. Such deadly confrontations were not limited to the USSR or Southeast Asia during the Vietnam War era. During the early evening of September 8, 1970, Radar operators at Lincolnshire's Royal Air Force Station Binbrook, near the east coast of England, detected several unauthorized aircraft over Grimsby, a seaport in northeast Lincolnshire. At the same moment, sightings of flying transparent spheres, according to local newspaper coverage, were reported at the village of Flamborough, about 50 miles away, on the North Sea. After the anonymous intruders ignored repeated radio calls for their identification, the RAF base commander assumed they were Russians and ordered a quick reaction alert fighter to intercept them. At 10.06pm, 28-year-old US Air Force Captain William Schaffner took off from Binbrook in Foxtrot 94, a British-built electric lightning outfitted with a pair of 30mm ADN cannons and a quiver of air-to-air -air missiles. Ground radar controllers vectored him to their mysterious scope contacts over the North Sea, where he soon made visual contact with something resembling a flying cone. While closing on it, Schaffner radioed that his avionics were going progressively haywire, 
and he was being outmaneuvered by one of Flamborough's transparent spheres, despite the electric lightning's 1-300 MEPS top speed and 20,000 foot-per-minute rate of climb. Shortly after 10.30pm, all communication with Foxtrot 94 failed, as 10 crew members aboard a passing Avro Shackleton, a large maritime patrol aircraft, witnessed the jet lose control and fall into the sea about five miles offshore. Its wreckage was discovered on October 7th by Royal Navy divers operating from the minesweeper HMS Kedleston. They were surprised to find the aircraft in relatively good condition, sitting with the proper side up on the ocean floor. Greater surprise came early the following December, when Foxtrot 94 was carefully brought to the surface by Royal Navy salvage workers. They found the plane's canopy still locked into position over the cockpit, but no one was inside. Captain Schaffner was declared dead, reported the Grimsby Evening Telegraph, but his body has never been found. Had he been atomized by an inconceivably powerful weapon, or teleported somehow out of his electric lightning and into the cone-shaped vehicle he had been pursuing, stateside U.S. military forces were no less under attack, although they were in grave danger of losing far more than a dozen men. Less than half a year before the Soviet air battle near the Afghanistan-Iran border, a front-page story in the Minot Daily News for December 6, 1966, told of numerous eyewitnesses, including police and local government officials, who saw luminous, disc-shaped craft flying in the vicinity of Mohal, North Dakota, near the Minot Air Force Base, America's most important military installation, headquarters for a wing of B-52s loaded with atomic warheads and intercontinental ballistic missiles, ICBMs. Captain David D. Schindele was the Minuteman Mosakant's ICBM launch crew commander there the following night, when a single UFO appeared over the facility. The extraterrestrial intruder destroyed no less than ten nuclear-tipped missiles in Captain Schindel's charge. Fortunately, he disabled them in time to prevent a series of atomic explosions that would have otherwise decimated the Peace Garden State. He abided by Air Force suppression of all public knowledge regarding North Dakota's brush with catastrophe for more than fifty years until the 2017 release of his appropriately entitled book, It Never Happened. Just eight months after Minot's missiles were taken down, the base was under siege again. On the night of July 26, 1967, Minot's executive officer received a red alert notice from radar operators at the North American Aerospace Defense Command, located at Peterson Air Force Base, near Colorado Springs, Colorado. He was informed of an unidentified contact descending over one of Minot's missile silos, he immediately scrambled two specimens of the Convair F-106 Delta Dart, then regarded as the ultimate interceptor. As the fighters were getting airborne, heavily armed members of a security team dispatched to the silo in question were astounded to behold a metallic disc about 50 feet across, its rim encircled by a garland of bright lights, slowly moving approximately 100 feet above the facility. The apparition stopped suddenly in mid-air, then ascended vertically another 400 feet, to hover briefly before vanishing away at the sound of the approaching jets. The next night, what appeared to be the same disc was observed drifting over each ICBM emplacement. Within an hour, writes UFO historian Mac Maloney, all of Minot's launch facilities had reported that a UFO had been over their location, until, like a bee singling out a special flower, it seemed to select a particular silo, pausing there about 40 feet in the air. Moments later, the missile's emergency indicators began to repeatedly flash in big, bright red lights, launch in progress, accompanied by the wail of doomsday sirens blaring across the whole base. Horrified control room directors 
and personnel fell over themselves trying to deactivate the nuclear tipped missile before it shot off on its irrevocable course toward Moscow. With only moments to spare, they succeeded in cancelling the launch sequence, and the awful emergency indicators went abruptly dark. As the chorus of sirens echoed away, the illuminated disc escaped unnoticed in the confusion. But it was apparent to all concerned, Maloney concludes, that the UFO had probed the missile's controls and had somehow switched them on. Had any of the inhibit commands failed, the missile would have launched. Clearly, the aliens had attempted to precipitate nuclear war. Even that near miss was perhaps less compelling than a discovery made by Sergeant Carl Wolfe, while he and his fellow electronics experts were compiling surveillance data for an escalating Vietnam War. He was a color laboratory photographic technician trained in electronic photographic repair at Colorado's Lowry Air Force Base. During July 1965, Wolf was issued a top-secret crypto-security clearance to the Tactical Air Command at Langley Air Force Base, Virginia, in the 44th Reconnaissance Technical Group, then involved in photographic reconnaissance and spy satellite photography. Some computerized contact printing instrument there was not functioning properly, and Sergeant Wolf was called over to fix it. When admitted into the equipment room, he found another airman second-class technician at work on the printer, which was about the size of a small apartment refrigerator. He showed me the equipment where the digital information came in, where it was converted to photographic images. They were doing 35 millimeter strips of film at that time, which were then assembled into 18.5 by 11 inch mosaics. Those strips were from successive passes around the moon. And they would take and build up a photograph by scanning one section of the moon, and another, and another. And then they would get a larger image. So this mosaic then would be put into that contact printer, and that was then a print. Because the dark room in which the printer had been installed was unsuitable for repair work, Sergeant Wolf telephoned guards for removing the equipment to a larger, better lit area. While waiting for them to arrive, Wolf and his colleague walked over to one side of the lab and he said, By the way, we discovered a base on the backside of the moon. And then he pulled out one of these mosaics that showed this base which had geometric shapes that were towers. There were spherical buildings. They were very tall, thin towers. They were massive. Some of the structures are half a mile in size, and they're all different structures in different size photographs. There were angular shots with shadows. I try to relate them in my own mind to structures here on Earth, and they don't compare to anything you see here in scale and structure. Not metallic, they're more like a stone structure, but fabricated stone. Some of the buildings seem to have very reflective surfaces on them. A couple of structures I saw reminded me of cooling towers at power plants. They had that sort of a shape. Some others were very straight and tall with a flat top. Some of them were round. Some of them looked like a Quonset hut, like a greenhouse. In the photograph that I saw, they were fairly clustered together over a fairly large landscape. There was one building that had a dish-like shape to it. It was very large. It looked like a radar dish, but it was a building. There was another building near it with an angular top that was truncated. All this four years before Neil Armstrong was the first man to walk on the moon. But the extraterrestrials operated more than lunar installations, according to Clifford Stone, a former U.S. Army Sergeant First Class attached to the 96th Civil Affairs Group, 6th Civil Affairs Company, NBC Nuclear Biological Chemicals. Com communications with a nuclear security clearance stationed at Fort Lee, Virginia. 
In winter 1969, Stone was the non-commissioned officer in charge of measuring surface readings of a crashed off-world vehicle outside Indiantown Gap, Pennsylvania, with his Geiger counter. While examining the wedge-shaped craft, he observed the corpses of several occupants. Over the next ten years, Sergeant Stone was engaged in another eleven related investigations for the Army, where he learned shocking news about the aliens. We, U.S. military forces, were involved in a major engagement in 1970 in one of their bases at a place called Duibadiem, Tien Province, Tien Giang, in the Mekong Delta region of southern Vietnam, approximately seven miles from the Cambodian border. A similar confrontation was described by Phil Schneider, a certified geologist, structural engineer and explosives expert. It took place at a subterranean federal government installation he helped construct in 1969 on the Jicarilla Apache Indian Reservation under Archuleta Mesa, on the Colorado-New Mexico border northwest of Dulce, a small New Mexico town. Schneider claimed during his June 15, 1995, Preparedness Expo lecture at California's Orange County Convention Center that he was one of only three survivors from a vicious firefight that occurred in late August 1979 with tall extraterrestrials at the underground facility. Although he did not specify how many aliens died, 66 U.S. Air Force and NATO Delta Force personnel were supposedly killed. After publicly describing the incident, Schneider claimed to have been repeatedly threatened by unknown persons who made him fear for his personal safety, although many listeners found Schneider's unsubstantiated account difficult to accept. They were shocked to learn that just seven months later, on January 17, 1996, his dead body was found in his Wilsonville, Oregon apartment, a rubber catheter hose wrapped three times around his neck and half-knotted in front. The victim of an execution-style murder, he had been tortured to death. Marie, his grieving widow, told newspaper reporters that Phil had no known enemies and was not in serious debt to anyone. She emphatically denied police accusations that her husband committed suicide, a physical impossibility in any case, given the mutilated condition of his corpse. This has been a reading from Frank Joseph's work entitled Military Encounters with Extraterrestrials, The Real War of the Worlds, Chapter 14, The Vietnam War Era, Please refer to the book for more information and links to cited sources. This concludes this tape.